Welcome to All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. I'm your host, Cricket Vitalman. Every month, I like to do an interview of a Stanford faculty member or administrator, and this month is no exception. So today's guest is Snehal Nayak, who is the Senior Director of the Office of Student Engagement. Hi, Snehal. Hi, how are you doing, Cricket? Doing well, how are you? Good, thank you. Would you mind telling us a little more about yourself? Sure. My name is Snehal Nayak. I use he, him, his pronouns. As you said, the Senior Director for Student Engagement, I started my job on June 1st. I've been at Stanford for 12 years. 10 years, I was in the office back then called the Office of Student Activities, and then it changed to Student Activities and Leadership. For the last two years, I was at the School of Business working in the Student Life Office with the DSB um, Student Organizations, and now I'm here back in the office starting June 1st and all this chaos, and I'm grateful to be here. Yeah, I imagine that starting in the middle of COVID during the summer must have been a little rough. To say the least, I think I started on June 1st, right around the time of the George Floyd incident, unfortunately. And so it was between the global pandemic and what is happening in this country around anti-Black racism and then evolving into the West Coast wildfires. It, it seems like a lot. So are you still on campus then? I don't come to campus too often. I work from home in San Jose. I live with my family, my parents, uh, in the home that I grew up in with my wife and twin boys that are eight. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. What drew you to Stanford then? I think Stanford has been on my eyes for quite some time. I'm a local Bay Area native. I was born in San Francisco and grew up in San Jose. My father was a hardware engineer, so we came down to Silicon Valley. And growing up, I've always thought about Stanford as an incredible place of potential and resources and networking. And I actually applied to Stanford, didn't get in, rejected class of 1989. 1999, I should say, sorry, went through my college experiences. And uh, when I was going circling back, I came back to Cal State Monterey Bay State School here in, in California and applied to Stanford and my position and thought this is a place that I want to be at to be able to make a difference and be around students and administrators and such to hopefully make an impact on the future, really. That's oh, you went to you went to CSUMB. That's where my brother went. Home of the Otters, right? I went, I worked there, yeah. I worked there for three years. My, I went to, my undergrad, I went to UC San Diego. Um, and then um, from there, went to NYU grad school, worked in Boston at Simmons College and all women's college there, and then came back to CSUMB, the Otters, yes. Home of the Otters, I was there for three years. <laughs> Which is better, the East or the West Coast? Ah, oh, that's a tough question. I think it depends on the time of year, because I don't miss the snow too much. Um, it, it definitely is, is, I was t- talking to a friend earlier this morning, I said, it's cold here in California, it's 55, and they're like, that's what? not cold, say huh? Yeah. So, <laughs> I said, it's windy, but I think it just depends. I, I do miss New York City, and I do miss Boston a lot. Mm-hmm. So, why the Student Engagement Office in particular? So, when I went to UC San Diego undergraduate, I was overly involved a lot, and I was, I was quite lost as to what I wanted to do, because I was pre-med for the longest time since fourth grade I can remember when I said to people I wanted to be a doctor I wanted to be a doctor and then my first organic chemistry class um, really just showed that this was not for me even though many of my doctor friends say they don't use organic chemistry anymore Um, but at the time I was lost and what really drew me and found me to what I wanted to do was student engagement it was all the student organizations it was the events and the best position I had at UC San Diego was the Commissioner of Programming, which is part of the student government. And 
we had, you know, I think it was around half a million dollars to put on a number of different programs. And I think that really is what sealed the deal on me looking at engagement as the way of um, my career path. I brought people from Unwritten Law, the punk band group, to Carrot Top to my favorite event, bringing Dr. Maya Angelou to campus and speaking. And I still remember a lot of what happened that, that evening at that event. It was just an incredible day. And my mentor helped me, who was a dean of students at the time. She's the one who led me to think through what is it that I wanted to do, which was around engagement. It was around how do we connect with each other? How do we form groups together and do things together as one? I think is kind of what drew me to the work. I think sometimes Stanford students, especially now, feel a little bit of a disconnect from the faculty and administration. We're talking about wanting to build this sense of connection. How do you think that we can do that in a time where there's just too much virtual stuff going on? Yeah, it's global pandemic has really hit Project Reset on a lot of things for us. We've been doing things for so long in, in such a similar way. I mean, things evolve over time, of course, with technology and all the things, but I think this is really putting pressure and stress and questions into how do we stay connected when it's not safe to do so in person just as of yet. And people are being very creative, I think. I've been hearing stories of Stanford students living together in random states like Wyoming. I was talking to a student the other day who was living in Wyoming with his friends. It was just so neat to hear how they would probably never would have done that had this pandemic happened. And I think regardless of where you live, regardless of what backgrounds you come from, I think trying to make time and energy not only for yourself, but however way you feel most connected. So whether it be calling people on the phone, I think people don't do too often, or the typical Zoom calls there. But I was the other day playing with my staff, Pictionary. Like it's just a game that just, I thought, we're not doing work. We're just kind of having some fun. And I think there's different ways we can do that. It just, it takes energy and time to think through what that looks like for each person. Because some people are thriving in this experience of being at home and others are struggling. I, I will say I'm struggling trying to stay connected, but it's, it's something you have to make time for. Right. But how do you think that students can try to connect with administrators? Because this is something we have difficulty with enough on campus. With administrators, I think putting time in our calendars, I think I've enjoyed the times when I am able to connect with students. I did some drop-in advising hours in the summer that worked really well. I still have those hours that are still available. That's been great. Inviting people to events is wonderful. I've been to a couple of events, which is great. I think ways to really all virtually at this point, but I think hopefully I can't wait for us to all return to campus and connect in person. So in the meantime, I think the best way is to just add time on our calendar. And if there's other ideas, I'm happy to hear them. Yeah, of course. I think it's a little bit tough because we don't really get too much notice sometimes of various administrators on campus and then also like how mm. to get to the office hours. Oh, interesting. Okay. So doing more promotions of that? Yeah, yeah I think that might okay. be helpful. Every week I get an email with events from the OSE and I think also yeah. the OPE, which... Oh, wait, yeah. Yeah. I got it's that one okay. wrong. But what kinds of events do you prioritize when you're putting them on the calendar? For me, it depends on when I'm available, what's going on. Um, there's been some neat things. And that collaboration is a new one with OAP and OSE because of a fellowship model we're trying in student affairs, where if there's an opportunity for staff to try different things, 
they can work in different offices. So that collaboration is the new one. I think looking at uh, events through that, seeing what piques your interest. And I would also encourage people to go to things that they may not even think may be a good thing to do. Just, just try it and see what happens. Yeah, I think this whole pandemic has really encouraged us to experiment a lot more. So how much did you have to do with the Campus Compact? The Campus Compact, I had very little to do with, only that I was aware of, but I know a lot of my, a number of my colleagues have worked really hard on putting that together. But I, I personally was not involved in those conversations. Are you involved in receiving feedback on the Campus Compact? Not personally. If I hear a feedback, I will direct them to the colleagues that I know they're working on it. But I, that's how I kind of redirect people and help them connect with who manages them. It comes from the Dean of Students office. I guess I'm just wondering what kinds of things you hear from students that are kind of in your area of expertise. I think what's been hard is around the inability to gather. It probably is the biggest thing. I actually went to the, there was a protest that happened um, and a kind of a rally that happened in front of the church I went to to go support the students and see what was going on. Mostly graduate students. And I think what's been difficult is between the state and the county guidance and then our interpretation of that and how do we continue to communicate and connect. I was talking to an undergraduate student the other day who lives in EBGR and it's just hard. I mean, I think this situation we're in is just something we need to wait and watch and see how it goes. And I think the pod thing is interesting. I hope that is something that works out and we're able to continue to keep the numbers low. Because if that is a success, we can continue to, I think, grow over time and we have to lean on environmental health and safety on guidelines. But I'm ready to go and getting excited about when we are able to have bigger gatherings. I'm working actually with Stanford Live on this project to have outdoor screens available for students and groups. That's not something we do typically a lot at Stanford, and I think it's exciting to see if there's ways to project movies or live television or even student projects and do it in a safe way once that is we're able to do that. Yeah, I remember, I think Stanford Live, in combination with a couple of other groups, sponsored a Willie Nelson concert a couple of years ago. That was such a fun concert. I brought a non-Stanford friend and we just had a blast. Oh, did you go? Yeah, I did. Oh, I love, I miss live music. I mean, that's I something I will just, it'll come back. It's just going to take time. Yeah, I was helping plan a convention. Well, it finished yesterday, actually. So last week was incredibly busy. But I remember one of the things that I just relished in was we had a talent show. And at the end of it, we had a live, well, I don't know if Zoom counts as live, but we had an artist do a set and it was just amazing. I've forgotten, you know, the power of just enjoying uh, music with, with other people. So I know I have, I have a part-time job at Shoreline Amphitheater. I, I supervise the box host or the VIP box host. And I just miss going to Shoreline and miss going to Frost Amphitheater. I think I was joking with the colleague that, you know, once everything's up back to whatever normal is at the time, I, I want to plan like a unity concert where we all just come together and have fun and play music. Are you a musician then? I used to be a musician. I used to play the cello for 15 years growing up. I stopped when I was in college. Yeah, I tried playing the cello and it didn't work out. So <laughs> <laughs> It's hard. It's definitely hard. Yeah. There was a report in the Daily about 19% of Stanford students missing COVID testing. Is there a way that campus is dealing with that? 
I wish I knew more about the intricacies of the testing that um, Baden Health Center is managing. I hope people are able to take it seriously and, and get tested. I think it's important so that we have accurate data to support what's going on. And it'll looking at the data will help with the reopening of Stanford and continue to do that. But how practical is reopening Stanford? I saw a thing on LinkedIn this morning that said, Johns Hopkins has estimated about 80,000 cases per day. So do you think that opening Stanford, I think the plan is for winter quarter, is even that yeah. practical? I wish I, th those are all the million dollar questions. I wish I knew the answers to those. I think a lot of it has to do with how the pandemic from now until January looks. I think there's a number of data points that the university is looking at, which I'm not aware of what those data points are, but I think looking at what the pods are and how successful those take place. I think looking at how serious the students that are on campus are doing and engaging. And I think there is a belief that we can, we're going to try to get the frosh and sophomores to move back to campus in January. Well, I, I, and you know, it's in the middle of all the flu and also, so it's, there's a lot of factors to, to take. And I wish it was more simple to say. And, and, you know, I was talking to a number of students that are planning major events in the winter and spring, and it's just so hard. And I, I talked to them about what the different, I mean, to plan hybrid and virtual and then in person and kind of waiting and watching and keeping your ears to the ground of what's happening. Yeah. So I was actually talking to a couple of students in spring quarter who had said that they really wished that Stanford would just tell us even no one's going to be on campus for all of next year because it would be yeah. easier for students to arrange housing and other stuff and then people wouldn't to worry about planning events and then canceling them last minute. So what do you think yeah. of that? No, I hear them. I think some universities have said that. I think there is some hope and optimism um, depending on the vaccine and what happens. And then there's, of course, the vaccine debate. But I think it just we're trying to hold out to see what happens, being hopeful that we will be able to manage this in a way. And I'm not in these meetings to understand in detail what's happening, but I could guess perhaps a hybrid model where Washington sophomores come to campus and many stay in their rooms and then some will go to class if it's you know permissible. But we'll see what happens and how this pandemic takes on. I mean, the numbers based on accounts is it's rising again. So I don't know. I just, it's so hard to tell. This doesn't have to be about Stanford in particular, but how do you balance optimism for the near future and practicality? That is a great question that was actually asked during my interview because I, for this job, for senior director, I remember it very vividly because I'm described as an optimist and, you know, then there's the pragmatist of like, what's really going on? And I think for me, it's based on my values and it's also based around how I was raised that things happen for a reason, that my father and my mother taught me this around that, you know, you need to follow your path and your life was already essentially written for you and to continue to believe that we're going to be okay. I think that is what has helped me because I think it's really, this is a re really incredibly hard time for most of us, if not all of us. And I think for me, it's my parents that have taught me that it's going to be okay. I mean, we're not there yet, and we're going to get there. And I, I kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel, but we'll get there. I do believe that. Well, I'm sh I sure hope so. So how are you, this might be a little personal, but how are you guiding your children through this? Because they're young, and it, it's, 
I mean, I know if I'd been that young and suddenly I had to do school online, I just wouldn't have been able to sit still for that long. I think what has happened from this pandemic, I hope, is to give more appreci- a deep appreciation for teachers. My goodness, I think I can't imagine having even younger kids that are going through this. I mean, can you imagine a kindergartner's learning how to read, has to do it virtually, and it is hard. And I think I'm grateful that I live in a community where community center is open and there is some risk associated with it and you have to think through what's good for these kids and they kind of get what's going on but they have no idea and I think in the middle of all this get that you know this is all hard and we know we can't do things like they want to go to the beach or they want to go to a theme park or wherever they want to go and or even just the park the local park is you know locked up still I think it's just, it's hard, but they can get easily distracted if we are able to continue to engage them. So they'll be okay. What's interesting, though, is that they're online, and technology was much different when I was in elementary school, but they're going to be really smart in some, in some sense, but I also worry about their attention to looking at a screen all day. I mean, that's a lot. I get, my eyes hurt sometimes. Of course, my optometrist decided to re- retire this year, so of all oh. the things... This is the year that I have to find a new optometrist. Good timing. <laughs> right? Oh, boy. <laughs> so earlier you mentioned that you you came to this position sort of around the George Floyd incident. How did the administration react? Because I know that the students had a very, very difficult time. I, I remember reading one story about that, and I couldn't bring myself to watch the video clip because I was just traumatized enough by the story. So how did the Stanford administration react to that and to what we were asking? Oh, you know, if I think back to June, which was just incredibly hard, I actually remember uh, I was in a meeting with staff and we were talking about supporting our Black colleagues and I had an Apple Watch and I don't think it's ever happened to me before where my pulse rate went so high because I was so, just so emotionally angry at the whole situation. And my, my watch was like, are you basically doing okay? Your pulse rate is really high and you're not moving. And that evening we had the vigil that was beautifully done by our administrators and students. And I watched the video after I saw um, my colleague, Jan Barker Alexander, speak about what happened in the video about how George Floyd was calling for his mom. And just it was just heart-wrenching. We, as many universities and businesses, are just taking a moment, because this all feels different than what has happened before, because they think what happens is these incidents happen, and then we, are, we get caught up in our own thing, and then we have short attention spans, and then we just move on to the next thing until something else happens. And I think this intentionally feels different, and I hope that we can continue the momentum of not only George Floyd, but Breonna Taylor and others. It's just, it's sick and it's sad. And I hope we can come out of this stronger and better. How do we do that, though, when there's just continued incidences? There have been shootings recently, and it seems like slowly that people are just becoming desensitized. Yeah. No, you're right. I think we need to keep talking about it. I, you know, in, in many meetings that I'm in, I realized this last week, and it sounds odd for me to say, but there is a new power in this role as senior director of student engagement that I'm still trying to navigate. And it's this ability to be able to speak into things that are important 
And so that when people listen to me, they hear what I'm saying. So for example, when I'm in meetings, I not only, and I intentionally do this, they speak and tell your students, your ministers, we're not only going through a global pandemic, but if you live in the United States, we're going through anti-black racism. And if you're on the West Coast, you're dealing with West Coast wildfires and so on and so forth. And I think the only way we're going to really make a dent into any of this is to keep talking about it and to not let it just sit and not get apathetic towards the situation. I think I'm grateful to have colleagues that continue to engage because I am not the expert in, in a number of things. And I'm also learning in all these things. And that's kind of why I love being in an educational setting, because I don't know if this happens in corporate world or even in nonprofit world necessarily. And I think that is where I take full advantage of being around an educational system to keep talking about it. Right. I would say that anti-black racism is happening everywhere, though. There's been a lot of stuff going on in Nigeria recently. and uh, I know. I just read that story this weekend. Yeah. It's awful. It really, it's, it's sad how humans are doing this to other humans, which I just can't get my head around. And don't even get me started about the gun debate, because I, oh, I can't stand guns, <laughs> personally. But if you want to own a gun, I guess it's okay. But I the, the amount of power someone has when they own a gun it's a lot about power. It's, it's just so. Yeah. A few years ago, there was a Robert Spencer event on campus, and yes. obviously, your office helped put that on somehow. Even if yes. if it was mostly arranged by, I think it was SCR. Yes. It was. And I remember going to the protest outside that event. Yeah. And at the time, I just was so angry. <laughs> yes. But afterward, reflecting on that, especially now. It was the protest itself was a really beautiful experience, not mm. because of the reason for it, but because there were just so many people there all sharing emotions yeah. and all having this reveling in this common humanity that we have. Yeah. How did you personally feel about that? And if there ever has been a Stanford event that your office has had to help put on that goes against your personal beliefs, how do you separate that from what you have to do? And the first part was what I thought about the protest you went to or just the event? Both. Both. I remember the Robert Spencer event really vividly only because, and we brought a number of different conservative speakers to campus. So it's not just about bringing conservative speech to campus, but this particular event was interesting and hard because what happened afterwards was a, a Twitter hailstorm of Robert Spencer and his people um, on Jihad Watch calling me a terrorist. and. God. It was incredibly hard, I think. At one point, I even received an email, and we started getting emails that I should resign, I should get fired. He suppresses free speech. There was one email I remember vividly where someone said, I'm going to come to your office next week. If I don't find you there, I'll come to your home where you live. And it's like, oh my God. What, what is going on? What I am trying to do really hard, because I think even now in this time, there's a lot of this us against them and it's this divided country and all the things. And I think for me to be open-minded as hard as I can, I mean, I can't listen to the vitriol of white supremacists as an example, but there is some conservative speech and some liberal speech that I try to make sense of so that we can all live next to each other. And I think part of me is like, how do we engage our students to be prepared to be global neighbors? I say, you know, I used to say global citizens, but with the immigration crisis, I, I say neighbors, because it, it really comes down to wherever you all end up living, 
you will have people of varying viewpoints that are surrounded by you. And how do you live with one another so that you can engage and, and be in community? And events like this remind me that, I mean, the obvious thing is, I think at anything that happens on campus, there is the open opportunity to have an anti-event, an anti-protest event to state your beliefs too, and currently with the other event whatever the other event is. I remember it reminds me of this time when we have Israel Independence Day and oftentimes our Palestinian students protest um, that event in White Plaza. And if you remember White Plaza where there's a bike lane in between, I remember one year at the, I mean, they were protesting and the other, and the Israel students were having their event. And at the very end of the event, they came to the bike lane line, if you can imagine this visually, and they shook hands. And I thought, this is incredible. Wow. That they, it was so powerful. It, it reminds me of the time we brought, you know, the, the Westboro Baptist Church followers came to campus. People were so angry. I mean, how could we let this happen? And what was incredible about that, and you can read about it online, is they all gathered in front of Hillel, and there was a student that was, and I'm forgetting the house that's right across from Hillel. A student came out with his bagpipes, and he started playing Amazing Grace. Oh. And everyone turned their heads and watched him. And I was like, it's these events, you know, as hard as they can be to bring people together in community. And I will never forget the last example I'll give is driving Dr. Connolly to Rice with the junior class president, Ashley Williams. You know, I was driving and, and Dr. Rice was speaking to Ashley. And, and she was basically saying, long story short, that you should be able to listen to varying viewpoints only because if you are able to do that, then you can either strengthen your own viewpoint or change your mind. And I think, I mean, even in this chaos of this election that's next week, the national yeah. election and the local election, I'm trying really hard to understand why are people voting for the people that they select, whether it be President Trump or Vice President Biden. There are people that, and there's varying viewpoints. And I think I'm trying, and as hard as it is that the media has done, to listen and to understand and to, again, strengthen or change my viewpoint. And I think that's what these events that we bring to campus is emotionally taxing and hard it is on a number of us, which, you know, it reminds me of what I tell my kids. When, you know, when someone bullies you or when someone teases you, you have three options. You can say, stop, I don't like that. You can walk away or ask for help. I think in the same vein, I think in my mind, like when I see these things, like these are options that you have to help cope with things that are hard to deal with. But I hope that in this, we're able to be one stand for be one country, one world. This world is full of so much hate because groups are yeah. constantly being marginalized. I mean, I, yes. I work with a couple of different advocacy groups and all of them are for people who are marginalized. And it's very difficult to come together when you're part of a marginalized group and the other groups are continuing to marginalize you. How do you manage that? Because this is something that happens in the Stanford community, everywhere, in research studies that show implicit biases and other things like that. It's a great question. I think it reminds me of when, so when I left the business school in May, we had a going away party for me and I, I kind of gave him a, kind of my, my some final thoughts. At the School of Business, there's a lot of great things. I think they still need to do better in their diversity hiring staff administrators too. And I, I told them that I know for a fact that I have to work substantially more 
and harder to be successful in this role than my white predecessor. And I think for me, and I told him, I said, I, I will lean on you all and I'll need your help to be successful and to help and to support and to to get feedback and all the things. And I think for me and to help others that are marginalized is to continue to bring up the issues, to think through what's feasible and what's reasonable at the time. And it's hard because there's a sense of immediacy that people want. And this has been going on for decades. Even, you know, it's interesting when we were, you know, when people were, I think in the activism world, they say, you know, people awoke. Now they're awoke because of the George Floyd incident. But this is like, nothing is new. This has been going on for decades. And so the work from the community centers that I know have been going on for decades. How do you honor that work and now listen? Because they've been asking to listen for so long. And so I think trying as hard as it is, and the quote I live by, and I hope this helps with the viewers that or the listeners of this show, is I believe in what Dr. Jill Bolte Taylor says around taking responsibility for the energy you bring into a space. So how you show up, how you show respect, how do you show discontent? How do you show the ability to invite others to the table and respect their opinion and work together on a shared vision and goals? Not such that we're pointing fingers at each other, which there is a Native American saying around, you know, every time you point a finger at somebody, there's three pointing right, up, right back at you. And I think taking in that, again, that responsibility for that energy that you do bring in to any situation, any problem, um, and how we work together so that th change can happen as slow as sometimes it can feel like. Because these systems of oppression have been here for so long, and I think as hard as it is to be discouraged or, or give up hope, I continue again and again. I don't know if this is part of my family's values, but I believe it will get better. It has to get better because there's more people talking about it. There's more people caring about it. And we're not there completely yet, but we have to move the needle in the right direction. Yeah, that's a very deep thought that I hope that people will consider. So my last question for you is the same that I'm asking everyone this month. Thanksgiving is coming up, and I'm not a fan of the holiday's history. But mm. there's a good point, especially now, um, we get so caught up in the bad things that are going on, all the horrible news, the election, so many contentious issues. And we should, because we need to be aware. But yeah. we also need to be thankful for what brought us here and what we do have. What are you thankful for? I'm thankful and grateful for my parents taking a chance and moving to Daly City in 1974 and making a life of themselves here, which I can imagine was really hard to do back then. And I'm grateful for a field of student affairs, which really didn't exist when I went to college and didn't think that would be a field I would choose to be a part of. Uh, and now I'm here. I'm grateful for the times that my former and current supervisors gave me a chance and gave me a job and brought me to the jobs I've been through. And I'm grateful for my family and friends and the ups and downs that I've been through and being supportive and listening and bringing great joy to me. And I'm grateful for people and students and really students. I think students are what drive me to do the work that I want to do to make it better. It's seeing the, and I miss, I, I can see it through Zoom, but it's so much better in person, the hope and the potential in their eyes of 
any students I've worked at, whether it be at Stanford or any at CSU Monterey Bay or Simmons College or St. John's or Seton Hall, or even my alma mater's New York University and UC San Diego, I think seeing through their eyes where they're going to go and how they're going to make a difference is what I'm grateful for because it gives me hope. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, thank you so much for giving me the space and opportunity to do this. I really appreciate it, Cricket. Yes, of course. Absolutely. If there's anyone else that you think would enjoy speaking on here, please let me know. Absolutely. And also reach out to me if you ever want to connect. I want to hear your stories. Student <laughs> engagement at stanford.edu. But yes, I will definitely encourage others to speak to you too. All right. Thanks so much. That was Snehal Nayak, who is the Senior Director of the Office of Student Engagement, which is a part of the Office of Student Affairs. This is another episode of All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. I'm your host, Cricket Beidelman, and if you have any feedback at all, please feel free to send it to communications at assu.stanford.edu. Thanks so much, and have a good one.